Good morning, church. Uh, technology, don't you love it? Um, just want to say a big welcome. Um, it's been a really rough week. Uh, two days ago, I couldn't even see out of this eye. It was completely shut and all crazy things. Couldn't read, so uh, bear with me as we work through today, okay? Lots of grace on me today. You good with that? I uh, appreciate that. I uh, also want to say a big welcome to, you know, we're here today because we stand with others who served with us in our past. And every person who had any influence in our past and summit, uh, we stand with them. And we want to say a big hi uh, to Stephen Michelle, welcoming him here back from... Uh, they moved down near the Gananaque area, have a nice place on... on uh, uh, on the, the river there. Yeah, that. On the water down there at the St. Lawrence and I have a retreat center and all that. And it's just so good to see you. God bless you. Um, Alan Joyce, welcome back. We look forward to hearing from you probably next Sunday. We good with that? Awesome. Back from Bolivia and uh, so excited to hear about what God was doing in you and through you in the ministry as you served him in mission there. Uh, we'll try to get things rolling behind us. If not, go old school. <laughs> Last week we saw that holiness meant living with sacrificial love. To love God with all that we have and all we are. To love fellow believers with, uh, like Christ loved, loves us. And to love those outside the family of God to love all people as we love ourselves. In fact, we learned that love and holiness are essentially connected in the life of Jesus' followers. You cannot separate holiness from love and relationship. So holiness meant, or uh, you know, following Christ and pleasing him meant living in sacrificial love. Holiness was sacrificial love. Well, Paul is going to lean into further living, uh, leaning into a way of living that reflects a holy and God-pleasing life by addressing a major issue that was in the Thessalonian culture and church that the believers were facing. And I want to say that it's not too far off from where we are. They had to learn to deal with sexual norms and practices that were pervasive in the Greco-Roman world. And as crazy and fluid and deviant in some ways, some people would say, our culture has become. It is not near the culture of the New Testament. This is very important for you to understand. For many people will say that the prudish teachings of the church today were locked in a bygone era, and we are just different from that. They're, they're right in one part. So much of the church teaching and attitudes towards sexuality and the practice of, of sex had to do with an era, but it was not the biblical era. It was not the first century era. Rather, it was an area in which Queen Victoria reigned in the Anglican church, and it became very, very prudish. And to speak about sex in church was just something that was not done, and, and, and all of that. Biblical sexuality is seen as a very, very good thing. Amen? 
It's true. God made man and woman. He said, be fruitful and multiply. They were naked and unashamed. And he said, for this reason, you leave a father and mother, and the two become one, and they become one flesh. It was very good before God. In fact, there's an entire book in the Older Testament that is written about the celebration of marital love. And there's an awful lot of imagery going on there. And they're not talking about gardening. In fact, my, one of my Bible college and seminary professors said that there are certain phrases in those passages no one has the guts to actually truly um, translate. Uh, I guess maybe because of the vestiges of the Victorian era. But you have an entire book that's given to the celebration of sexual love within marriage. And uh, I just, we need to understand that, that it's very, very important. In the Newer Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we give, there's teaching about marital love, and it's wonderful things that are taught there, that a husband ought to give to his wife her conjugal rights. And same thing with wives to husbands. That within Christian marriage, the scripture tells us there, that within Christian marriages, as we both surrender to one another, actually... We don't have exclusive right over our, and authority over our own body. Now, you want a message that cuts against the culture of today? Husbands, you do not have authority over your own body. The wife does. And wives, you don't have authority of your own body. The husband does. So you mutually share authority over one another's bodies, the Scripture says. You're not to deprave one another of sexual intimacy. Unless you mutually decide for a time you should, you're not going to. That's okay to do that. Especially if you give it times for prayer and other kinds of spiritual matters. But he says if you decide not to, that's fine. Go for it. But get back together. Celebrate physical intimacy within your marriage so that Satan not tempt you. This is very, very important we all understand and, and understand the scripture is not squeamish. I remember one time in the early days of summit, I was doing a marriage series and I was talking and I was preaching and talking about foreplay. And my father said, you talked about foreplay from the pulpit? I go, yeah. I remember saying this, that when the, God the Father sees a husband and a wife enjoying one another, making love, he doesn't blush nor does he turn away. And I believe his smile comes to his face. That's the kind of God we are. This whole attitude towards sexuality is not part of biblical sexuality. It's something that came in the history of the church in Europe. Now, having said that, you need to understand that all of the wonderful teaching about biblical sexuality is to be within the confines of marriage. It's that way from cover to cover. Older Testament to New. This is God's plan. It's His directive. Sometimes it records things that don't line up with that. It doesn't mean it endorses it, but it just it records stuff that happens. But all the way through, in fact, God even uses a wonder of the union between a husband and a wife to illustrate the bond that Christ has with His church. And that one day in the book of Revelation, actually, there's going to be full celebration at the marriage feast of the Lamb, where Jesus the groom and the church the bride are reunited forever. 
Now, I also must say that Jesus sanctified singleness. It was a plight almost in the Older Testament, but what Jesus showed us in the incarnation and his life was that he sanctified singleness as a as a as just as a legitimate option to live in our world as married being married and it is uh, he showed us you can live a fulfilling life of deep intimacy and connection and community with people but you can live single and celibate and live a holy life Whether you're married or single, God's call to us, as we're going to discover today, is to live in holiness. And both are legitimate and his desire. So, with that brief introduction, we're going to get started on talking. In our series, we're talking about holiness, hostility, and hope. And uh, this is one of the things that the church is going through, and that is to live a holy life in the middle of a hostile culture, not just persecuting, but their values are just being screamed at them. And just like our day, they're being screamed at us. So, um, I just want to, oh, come on, don't do this to me now. There we go. I want to read through the text, and then we're going to uh, just walk through it and dissect a few things together. Our text today... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 to 8. And so we're going to read this together. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, that means it was a, a walk means to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. We want you to increase how you're living to please God. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. They were there three or four weeks, and then because of persecution, Paul had to get yanked out of there. But in that month, they gave deep teaching. They already taught all kinds of things to them. They just met daily and taught them and taught them and taught them about how to live the faith. The two big ones about turning from idols and being sexually pure. So he's reminding them, remember, Know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. This is saying, it's not my opinion. This is what actually came from the Lord Jesus himself. Friends, this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You know, people are wanting to know, what is the will of God for my life? I know what they're asking. They want to know, what, you know, what school should I go to? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I have? And I just need to tell you, in the scripture, those things are all secondary by far to who you are becoming and the fact that you're living with character in alignment with the will of God. This is the will of God for you. I can say this and look anyone in this room in the eye and myself in the mirror. God's will for his people is that we live free of sexual immorality. Now the question comes, as I discovered one time many years ago doing premarital counseling, that what we believe to be sexual immorality is not necessarily what's believed today. So we'll get to that. What does it mean? But this is God's will for your life, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, 
Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles or the pagans or the heathen who don't know God. That no one transgress and wrong your brother or sister in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you, we've been here before, guys, we talked to you about this. Verses 7 to 8, for God has not called us for impurity, but he's called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards, neglects, or ignores this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The word of the Lord. Now, why address, why address uh, this whole teaching in the Thessalonian church? And there's two big reasons why, obviously. One was due to the different sexual standards that were generally existed between the Jewish believers and the pagan or Gentile world as the gospel went out away from Israel and Judea and to the uttermost part of the earth. Now we're entering into all different kinds of places and spaces where their sexual practices were not the same. They were often very different, significantly different, and widely accepted. In the world of unbridled self-gratification, this is what the Thessalonian church was into. It was right at their doorsteps. As N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, said, sexual desire, preference, and practice was by many historical accounts a moral free-for-all in that era where the only rule that people must allow would be allowed to express whatever desire happened to arise or be aroused within them. And in contrast, the Jewish teaching of the Torah was clear, well-known, and adhered to within the Jewish context. This is maybe why Jesus didn't say a lot about certain things sexually. I know people like Michael Korn and others say, well, Jesus didn't talk about it, so therefore it doesn't matter. That's using a line of reasoning that just didn't understand that within the Jewish context, it was very clearly delineated. In fact, Jesus did take what was, what assumed what was all written and taught in the Jewish Torah, and then he deepened it, didn't he? To move it outside of just actions into actual thoughts and intentions and desires of the heart. So, the way of Jesus was unknown among the Greco-Roman world uh, that the church found itself in. It was very new and strange teaching to the culture. The second reason was that often in pagan or Gentile practices of idolatry, there was much worship going on. It wasn't a culture that didn't worship anything. There were gods coming out their yin-yang. They worshiped all kinds of gods. And the idolatry in the temples and other types of things often involved practices that, in, that included sexual immorality. And he right again said, pagan temples regularly doubled as virtual brothels. Sexual practices of all sorts were at least tolerated, if not actively encouraged within the society as a whole. Now, when you travel the world and you go to ancient sites, you see this all over, whether you're in Cambodia or whether you're in Turkey or other places, you see, you can see where historic evidences of pagan worship in temples were connected with idolatry idolatry and immorality. 
Worship was, had to do often with sexual ecstasy. And there were ancient temple prostitutes, male and female. In the Old Testament, when Moses went up to Sinai to meet with God to receive his law, he was gone only 40 days, and you know what happened? It just took over a month of his absence where the people began to engage in both idolatry and sexual practices of the pagan nations around them. A golden calf and a virtual orgy. This is what was going on at the base of Mount Sinai. So the two main restrictions, remember uh, in Acts chapter 15, the gospel was going out into these new areas of non-Jewish people. And so they were saying, what do we make them do? Do we make them become and follow all the Jewish rituals? And they had this council in Acts chapter 15, and what they said was, what should we do? What do we hold them to? And we, in this first church council, they were determined that they, they were to hold them to basically two main restrictions to Gentile or pagan culture uh, converts. And that was to avoid sexual immorality and idolatry. And they also threw in, you know, eating things that were sacrificed to idols and blood strangled instead of bleeding the animal out. But the main things that they said, they don't have to follow all of the Jewish law, but they must deal with idolatry and immorality. The message of Christ and following Jesus has always called his people to sexual holiness. You know, Paul makes this connection as well in Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians 10, the idea of idolatry and immorality, and he calls it out. So, we please God, here's our main points today, we please God, we find them in the text, by living in sexual holiness. You please God, did you know that? Yes, judicially, you're right in a good standing before God. That's true. But you please God. You sense his favor. And there's no disruption in the connection of your relationship with God when we live in ways that please him. We sense his divine smile. And we please God by living in sexual holiness. And we see this, his outline, he gives about four or five, or five reasons in this text as to why we should do so. The first one is we do so to obey God's will. We do so to obey God's will. This is the will of God, your sanctification. The word sanctification, he uses a word that's the same root word for holy, hagios, and uh, sanctification and holiness are very closely connected. And so what he's talking about is that it's God's will that we live in holiness. And that holiness touches every area of our life. There's no area in our life where, where it's, you can't go there or it's hidden from God. God's holy authority in our lives covers absolutely every area of our life, including our sexuality. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. That you abstain, you, you hold back, you stop, you don't indulge in, don't engage in sexual immorality. The word used here is the, the word porneia. It's a Greek word that was used and it was, it, you find it all through the scripture. And I'm going to net it out for you that in biblical usage... It included a number of sexual practices that stood in contrast to the holy nature of God and the loving call of his people. Simply stated, it is all forms of sexual practice outside of 
the God-ordained marriage covenant between one man and one woman. All sexual practice. That means pre-marriage. We have Christian parents now that are telling their kids, you ought to live together and sleep together and know whether or not you're compatible. That's pornea. The older versions used to translate it fornication. It means extramarital. Once you're married, any sex outside of the marriage bond, including adultery, prostitution. It includes things like group sex, and even, it sort of gets so graphic, but even animal sex. All are strictly prohibited by God from cover to cover in the Bible across all cultures with no loosening of his standard for his people. And today, people dismiss what they, this, what they call outdated moral standards. But again, I remind you, the context in which this was written was more sexually promiscuous and fluid than our culture is even. It's a misunderstanding of the context. It has always been God's will to lovingly call his people to sexual holiness, to be distinct. That's the word holy means to be other, separated from sin unto God for him and his purposes alone, including issues of purity. It's always been God's call to be different and distinct from the culture in which they find themselves. In Old Testament ancient times, even in Jesus' life on earth and the New Testament era, all the way through until eternity, God calls his people to live with sexual holiness. Paul reminds them that the community of Jesus is not like the community outside. I remember these wonderful words from Paul to the Roman church where he says to them in chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, distinct, different, separate from sin, separate unto God for him and his purposes. This is your spiritual worship Don't be conformed to this world, or I love the Phillips version, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It is the will of God, your sanctification, So for those who became followers of Jesus, a whole new view of their bodies and of sexuality and sexual conduct had to be incorporated into their lives. So, in the eyes of the culture, limiting, restrictive, repressive. However, in God's wisdom and design, it is for human flourishing. Human flourishing. I was listening to a uh, marriage workshop that was given by Dr. Tim Keller and his wife in New York, and um, it was fascinating to listen to the workshop. And what, was, what he drew out at the beginning of it 
was fascinating because as he serves mostly young adults in New York City, many of them single or, you know, what life is like in downtown New York. And he built his church there and multiple campuses. And, and Tim Keller said this. He said that what every, almost every belief that's held by the young adults in our culture today as true completely is shown to be the opposite in the empirical evidence and research, Christian or non-Christian. They believe that those who live together are more compatible and they should test drive before marriage and the facts tell us that actually those that live together and sleep together before marriage actually have higher divorce rates than those that don't. Marital satisfaction, they believe that marriages, people in marriages are basically unhappy why? Because there's 50% of them are, are to end in divorce, and the other 50% are always happy. So their conclusion, young people believe, is that marriage isn't great. They're most people in marriages are unhappy. The empirical evidence and research, even by unchristian, non-Christian firms, actually tells you a different story. That most of them are happy, and if they stay together, that within five years, those that said they were unhappy actually register again as being happy. And uh, what's, uh, it's just utterly, what research is showing is what God has been telling us all along. And I can just tell you that it's God's plan for human flourishing. Far from being limiting and repressing, that God's plan for human sexuality within marriage is actually the best way, the most fulfilling way. And... I don't want to embarrass her, but I just got to tell you, you know, after 36 years of marriage, it's even better than the beginning. Just telling you. It could be that way. As you tend to your relationship, tend to one another, serve one another in honor, and, you know, the grass isn't greener outside the other side of the fence. Grass is greener where you water it. All right? So, um, I digress. Uh, we please God by living in sexual holiness. Get it? Got it. It's God's will. And when we obey God's will, there's God's blessing. Here's another one. We, we please God by living in sexual holiness. Here's another reason, another incentive to do that, and that is you control your body. That's another reason we do this. We live this way to control our body. What does this mean? I love what Keller said in this thing. When you don't control your body, you are at the absolute impulse of your body. You are weak because it's your emotions and your feelings that just lead you all over the place. That's a place of weakness. For the Christian, indwelt by the Spirit of God, we take control of our bodies. We master our feelings and our drives. Now that is freedom. You're in bondage being led around by the snout, by your feelings and your drives. True freedom is found in Christ, living God's way and being a master of your own bodies. We read this in this passage, verse 4 and 5, that each one of you should know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. What he's talking about is here, it's unbridled, untethered desire. Sexual desire and passion is good, but when it's unbridled, then that's where it goes off. And you should know how to control your own body. Our culture says do whatever you feel. 
That's not, I'm telling you, that is not freedom. That's bondage. Freedom is being in control of your own desires and your bodies, being able to do whatever God calls you to do. It's fascinating that if you read commentaries on uh, that each one you should control your own body, uh, some of your translations will say your own vessel. And so there's a lot that the literal term in Greek means vessel. So the question is, what is it? And uh, these are all over the map. There's about three or four major ones. Just for those of you who are interested, I'll just highlight them. One of them talks about that your own vessel is actually your own spouse. You're the appropriate person with whom you have. There's uh, examples in 1 Samuel chapter 24, actually, that talks about maybe it's talking about your own sexual uh, organs. But generally speaking, the most accepted one is that he's talking about, in generality, your body and your sex drive. You should know how to control yourself. One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The evidence is He's alive and work in you. We please God by living in sexual holiness, not by obeying His will and controlling our bodies, but by respecting others. You have respect for others. You say, where is that in the text? We read in the first part of chapter, or verse 6, he says, that no one transgress or wrong your brother or sister in this matter. You ought to have respect for others' spouses, other singles, other married people within the family of God. And you don't do anything that gets yourself in a compromising position. You watch it. You start, watch it out at the start. You know how it is when you get a little emotional buzz when someone walks in the room. You go, ooh. Next thing you know, you find yourself, you know, dressing differently in hopes that they'll be there. You know, all these little things, and those things just begin to lead you down a road. No, you respect other people in the body of Christ, someone else's spouse, someone else who's single in the room, or if you're single, someone else's, you know, another single brother or sister of Christ or another married person. One writer said this, God has written a, quote, no trespassing sign over every man or woman who is not one's own wife or husband. And then posted underneath that, trespassers will be prosecuted. We respect. We don't put ourselves in compromising positions. We don't lead that person away. We don't develop emotional, uh, you know, emotional relationships that lead to sexual relationships. We honor how we look at others and how we treat them. We please God by living in sexual holiness, not only respecting for others, but avoiding Christ's judgment. This is where that, you know, prosecutors will be, or your trespassers will be prosecuted. We don't like to think about this about Jesus. Sometimes in the church we think that, oh, God of the Old Testament is judgmental, but Jesus isn't, like as though he allows anything. The fact of the matter is Jesus is the coming judge. It's prophesied in the Old Testament he came and he, he judges and he will. He will be the instrument, the, the part, the person of the Godhood who will, who will dole out justice. In verse 6 we say, don't transgress one another's brother and sister. Why? Because the Lord, remember we were in last week, the Lord means Jesus. Jesus is an avenger in all these things. 
as we've told you beforehand, and we solemnly warned you. Friends, we warned you about this. We taught you about this. The underlying seriousness of the issue, Paul reminds them that they warned them and that sexual sin will not go unpunished or unnoticed by God. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews affirms the same warning and consequence in chapter 13, verse 4, where he says, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Friends, I don't know. He doesn't tell exactly how that judgment's coming out. But we know at the end, we all will stand before the judgment seat. Not the great white throne. where We don't have to face. We're, we're followers of Christ. We're gonna, but we will stand before Christ that every word and deed that we've done in the body as a follower of Christ will be held to account. And it's serious. Some people want to put sexual sin just on the same level as stealing a paperclip from some office. It, was, it, might, it might be enough of a sin to actually separate you from God, but the ramifications are not the same. Hear me. Sexual sin has way different and more ramifications. Uh, 1 Corinthians says that you know, chapter uh, 6 tells us that, you know, all sins people commit are outside the body, but sexual sin, people sin against their own body. There's a difference that comes, and some of you know the pain of sexual sin that you've done or have done to you. It's a different deal. The ramifications are huge, and God takes it incredibly serious. Part of the reason why is because his people are to be showing the world who he is. And as we live in faithfulness, we are showing them our God. So not only is there a, a some kind of a judgment somehow that Christ is going to bring, not only in the life, you know, at the end, sometimes actually in the present there's judgment. As N.T. Wright says, we may observe that not infrequently, this judgment is anticipated in the present life. And, uh, you know, he's British. You've got to think, listen to this through like a really thick British accent. Particularly exquisite misery awaiting those who ruin healthy and deep relationships through their relentless pursuit of sexual conquests and thrills. There is a judgment that comes in our very life as well. We pay the price for it. Lastly, we please God by living in sexual holiness. And one of the last reasons is because we respond to his call. We respond to his calling. For God has not called us for impurity, but he's called us in holiness. These are incentives. These are reasons. We say, why do we do this? When our whole culture lives the other way, it seems. Because God actually has, it's his will that we obey him. We are to control our bodies. We have respect for others. We avoid the judgment of Christ. And we respond to God's call. He calls us into a life. Following Christ is not just believing certain doctrines and then you do what you want. 
It's a life he calls us into. In fact, I was listening to my friend uh, Dom Russo out of Montreal and uh, VJ Christian over at the well, and they were doing a podcast, and they were talking about how Christians today are actually starting to believe in a, a form of Gnosticism that was prevalent in the, in the first century that John, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, the letters wrote about. And basically, it's some kind of a dualism where anything spiritual is good, Anything physical is evil or doesn't matter. And so, therefore, you've got a highly individualized faith where you, you believe in Christ and you have these experiences of worship and all of that. You learn things in your spirit and that's good, but whatever happens on an earthly level or with your life or your body, it doesn't matter. And so we have this dichotomy happening, this dualism, where we're believing that that's true. And so Christians who actually believe, say they believe in God and live and worship Him and have these great experiences, yet they live immoral lives. And it's a form of Gnosticism. The incarnation shows that our bodies matter. When Jesus took on flesh, He sanctified the human body and its, its purposes. And so what happens in the flesh and what happens in the spirit, they're connected. God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness that we live in ways that please him in the realm of sexuality. He concludes with this in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Some of you, if, you've been, if you're involved in sexual immorality, you need to understand you're disregarding God. Don't fool yourself that you're actually tight with God. And when you disregard God, He's the one who gives the Holy Spirit to you. He's the one who gives you the power over the flesh. He's the one that enables you to exercise self-control. He's the one that enables you to live a holy life. Galatians 5 teaches that the deeds of the flesh, and he talks about them as, you know, immorality and all of these sensuality, all these kinds of things, versus walking in the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence of the Spirit-controlled life. 1 Corinthians 6, sexual immorality is to be avoided by the Christian's in Corinth because their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and we force him to participate. So to reject the command to live holy life sexually or otherwise does not mean the rejection just of a precept or I ignore a particular teaching. You're rejecting God himself. That's what the scripture teaches us. This is tough, isn't it? Following Christ in our culture is a call to distinct living, holy living. And we can't end here because I know in a room this size there's been a lot of trips, a lot of trip-ups or falls morally. So let me just quickly say, if you have fallen in sexual sin now or in the past, you've never really dealt with it, here I just say this. First, confess it to God. Confess it as sin. You agree with him. And you ask his forgiveness. If you want to pray through a few psalms, pray through Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5. 
talks about when he kept silent about his sins. It was just God's hand was heavy upon him. But when he confessed it, just beautiful. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Beautiful passage. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, 1 John 1, 9. Whoever confesses, agrees with God and acknowledges it, confesses their sin. God is faithful and he's just and he will forgive. And not just that, he'll cleanse from all unrighteousness. I confess it and ask forgiveness. Then I repent and renounce. Repent of the activity and renounce the activity. That's to turn away for and formally declare your abandonment of it. If you're in something right now, you shouldn't be. You formally repent, turn from it, abandon it, and declare your abandonment of that. And then utilize your spiritual authority in Christ where you break any soul ties or, in, or remove any spiritual influence that comes into your life because of this sin. And there is spiritual influence and consequence. You take your authority in Jesus as a cleansed person now and you stand in that authority in Christ and in the name of Jesus, you renounce that sin in Jesus' name. And any influence, that any spiritual influence any demonic influence in your life because of that sin, and you break any soul ties. Remember, Scripture says if one becomes, you know, and joins with a prostitute, they become one with her. When you join with someone outside of a marriage bond, there are soul ties that happen. You can't see them, but they're real. And in the name of Jesus, you break those things in the name of Jesus. And you stand free. And then you be filled with the Spirit. Oh, you ask the Spirit to come and fill you and you receive a fresh anointing and fullness of the Spirit to enable you to walk in obedience because you can't in your own flesh. You need the Spirit and you obey. You walk in obedience lastly. And then I would encourage you to invite a trusted brother if you're a man, a trusted brother if you're a sister, a trusted woman to walk with you, pray with you, pray for you, encourage you, ask tough questions, some accountability. So friends, if you fall into sexual sin, it's not the end of the world so long as you confess it, repent and turn, and take your authority in Christ and be filled with the Spirit and walk with others. Now, too often the church has abandoned those who have fallen sexually in their past. But at Summit, as you know, we would rather be an auto body shop than some kind of showroom. In showroom churches, everyone has to run, but not in an auto body shop. Every one of us has dents, scratches, scrapes. We've all been influenced somehow. And we just face it, walk together in an atmosphere of grace and authentic vulnerability. Small groups can help encourage you in holy living. We have Celebrate Recovery for you to walk through all kinds of things that might be entangling you. Do where you walk and live confessionally with others and experience recovery from these things. We have set free retreats and soul care sessions where you can walk through and uh, deal with certain things and pains of your past and things that have the symptoms of some of this. And we encourage to sometimes use the expertise of trained counselors who might need to untangle some deeper, long-standing wounds or patterns from your past. There are marriage retreats 
and the availability of coaching couples in our church to help build or maintain healthy marriages and spouses so that we don't wander in our hearts and our minds towards others. And as a community of Jesus, I just want to say, we can help one another live this out. A holy, honorable, and God-pleasing lives in the areas of our sexuality. For those of us who believe in him and are in Christ, he designed and commanded how life is best worked. Living in alignment with his character and his will, his word, his ways, is to live a holy, pleasing life before him. Living in holiness leads to a blessed life, the joy of being congruent. I've said this hundreds of times, there's no peace in the world that I have than be able to lay down at night and put my head on my pillow next to Leah with a clean conscience. I tell you, there's nothing that feels that good. The way God designed us, it's the wisest way. It leads to a life of peace, joy, wholeness, blessing, and connection with Him. So, remember this. God has given these commands for two reasons. One, to protect you from. And secondly, to bless you with. Every time God gives a commandment to, that you abstain or stop doing something, it's because he wants to protect you and he wants to bless you. So may all of us find grace and freedom to live this out. Amen. For this is God's will for you, church, that you live a holy, sanctified life in the air of your sexuality. Let's pray.